Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The Bowery Boys, Episode 72... Rockefeller Center. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. Rockefeller Center is our topic today. It is so big that we're just going to get to it here. Rockefeller Center makes Midtown what it is. It's an office space for thousands of people. It's a transportation hub. And it's a center for entertainment in Midtown. And it's a giant draw for tourists, of course, who come in droves, especially around the holiday season, like right now, to look down at the ice skaters or up at the Christmas tree. So we're going to tell you a little bit of the history, some of the people who made Rockefeller Center what it is today. And we're going to take you on a little tour, building by building, of some of the more notable places that make up the center. So join us as we grab our piece of the rock. Tom, let me get us started here. For the yeah, we're situation. just going to run through the... We should also probably tell our listener that um, we're a little bit nervous about the timing on this one because we want to push through the whole story. We have a, so much information because this is a fantastic place and it's a full, robust story here. And we didn't want to you know, divide it up into two stories, two different podcasts either. We wanted to get this all in one episode, so we have a little buzzer here. If either of us goes over, we're just, just... We'll make a sound. So if, if, <laughs> if you hear something, it sounds like a like a hairdryer falling into the bathtub. Well, that's, oh, that's just a buzzer. <laughs> nice image. Thanks. <laughs> um, well, let, let me situate. Yes, please um, do. You know, this is in Midtown Manhattan. To, like I said, it's the heart of, of Midtown. To me, personally, I go to this complex at Every day. Mm. I'm, I'm there every day, as thousands of New Yorkers do, thousands of New Yorkers who work or travel through it. Through right, the, and I used to work in the building. I think if you live in New York long enough, then you're going to have some close connection with Rockefeller right. Center. Now, Rockefeller is 19 buildings, actually. It's between 48th and 51st Street. Fifth Avenue is the eastern edge, and, and all the way over to 6th Avenue. And some of the buildings on the other side of 6th Avenue are also now part of Rockefeller Center, but they weren't always. Mm. It's 22 acres, and most of it is in that original Art Deco style, but the buildings on the 6th Avenue are in the far more less interesting international style. Well, to some, some people really dig that style. 
And trust me, if you dig it, then Sixth Avenue just has your thing going on, you doesn't can, it? For days and days of international style. The eastern side of Rockefeller Center is, is owned by Tishman Spire Properties, mm-hmm. and that Sixth Avenue part is still owned by a group called the Rockefeller Group, which in itself is owned by the Mitsubishi Estate. Did That's you know that? Completely clear. <laughs> they won't be a test afterwards. You know, some of the more famous parts, really quickly, of uh, is of course the GE Building, the former RCA Building, which houses NBC headquarters and studios, and they film Saturday Night Live and Thirty Rock. There, instance, believe it or not, yeah. Top of the Rock is where you know it's a it's tourist magnet where you can catch these breathtaking views of the city. There's the ice skating rink in the wintertime. Those beautiful channel gardens that go up to our topic from last week, Saks Fifth Avenue. Radio City Music Hall. There are shops galore, of course, many above ground, but of course many in the, that underground concourse. Right, that sort of shopping arcade. That sort of as a web of corridors un- underneath it. And of course, it's a transportation hub. All these different subway lines that go through there. So today, when we're discussing Rockefeller Center, we're not just talking about 30 Rock, that sort of centerpiece building. We're talking about the entire complex of buildings. Yes, so though certainly that probably is the most important part of it. But we're talking about many, it's not just the buildings, but just the whole idea of it, the whole plaza, the way it's whole laid out, mm. the fact that it's a city within a city, essentially. So take us back to the beginnings before there were even any hints of a Rockefeller in Midtown Manhattan. Right. Well, there were rocks back in the old days. There were hills. <laughs> and lots of fellers. But... And lots of fellers climbing up those <laughs> rocks. rocks. <laughs> well, there was a particular feller named David Hosack, who was a uh, prominent 18th century doctor and a professor. He was actually the doctor who treated Alexander Hamilton after he lost the duel with Aaron Burr. That, David Hosack. That's reaching back here. Yeah, well, that's where we are. We're in late 18th century New York City, newly New York. Mm -hmm. And David was a professor also of uh, medicine and physiology at Columbia University, which was downtown. And he decided to acquire some land that was way up north of the city because, of course, the city stopped, what, around Canal Street or so. Correct, yes. As you had all the farms and farming territories north of that. And there was a carriage road that would go north up to, you know, other villages like Harlem in the far north. Sure. But along the way to Harlem, on that carriage road, there was another territory that was rocky and uh, full of foliage and such. And David bought this big parcel of land to develop his own botanical garden. Oh, that sounds kind of cool. I guess the concept of these gardens have been in Europe for centuries. He sank about $100,000 into it, transforming that rocky landscape into something very exotic. With plants from other uh, other countries, I'm assuming, from all over the world. People called it Hosek's Folly. But with that kind of a nickname, I'm assuming it wasn't a big success. Well, I mean, it depends how you define success, because he really did, you know, develop this beautiful natural environment. Um... But it wasn't, you know, really sustainable. And once he had spent all the money available to him, he needed to hand over the land to somebody else or try to sell it off to raise some funds. So finally, he persuaded the state of New York to buy it from him for $75,000. What would happen to these trees and such, the exotic plants and that would actually become the starter collection for the New York Botanical Gardens up in the Bronx. Some of the other plants would be planted up in Morningside Heights, which would become the later site of Columbia University. Who then figures into the story here in a minute, right? Just amazing, Greg. Everything ties together. 
So a circle of life. So Zach sells his property to the state of New York for seventy five thousand dollars. New York doesn't really know what to do with it. They can't really lease it out very easily. So at the same time, Columbia, which had been in operation now, if we're in in the early eighteen hundreds, they'd been around for sixty or seventy years. They came to the state asking for money. New York State didn't give Columbia money, but they did give them this parcel of land owned by Hosack. Well, that sounds a little odd because, I mean, you can't go out and spend land in the same way that you can spend money. But they well, thought, I thought that- perhaps they should get the kids, you know, the students up from their campus that was around City Hall at the time. Mm-hmm. This might make a good future campus for them, get them a little bit out of the city, and they could maybe make some money on the real estate downtown. Okay. Which is pretty much what they did. I mean, at first they couldn't find anybody to rent the the land that they had just inherited, and they called it their upper estates. Because at this time, it was far outside the city limits. Though in 1807, there was the grid plan, you know, the commissioner's plan, where they decided Mm -hmm. to lay out uh, streets that stretched up and for the first time really put the print of the modern city, the grid of the city, on Manhattan Island. And suddenly, this parcel of land suddenly had borders. Uh, That carriage road that we talked about became Sixth Avenue. And and of course, Fifth Avenue, as we talked about in our Saks Fifth Avenue podcast, became the sort of the the locale for the wealthy, and it and was so strewn up and down with the with those mansions. And they started right; people started moving uptown. Uh, St. Patrick's would open nearby. The Dutch Reformed Church would actually open. Uh, they'd buy some of the estate's property, uh, and millionaires would just start moving up. Astors uh, started buying up properties left and right. Millionaires were up on Fifth. Sixth Avenue remained a, a little bit grittier. You know, you had saloons and brothels and such. So at the turn of the 20th century, Columbia had a very headstrong um interesting president named Nicholas Murray Butler. And any Colombians listening to the podcast know Butler's name well, because that was remains the big library on Columbia's campus. Oh, it was campus. named after him, right. And he also oversaw, at this time, a period of expansion. Uh, the campus was located at this point on Madison Avenue on the upper estate property. They had moved it up there. He had sold off, actually, the southernmost block from 47th to 48th Street for $3 million to pay for Columbia's new land in Morningside Heights. So they were starting to sort of parcel off and sell off parts of these these blocks. And this was over over 100 years ago, 1904, correct? Correct. They also did something interesting because they wanted to attract as many tenants and such to the upper estate. So they they changed an earlier provision, uh, making it legal for apartment buildings and small industry to also to take leases on the property, uh, which instead of raising, I guess, Columbia's revenue, did the opposite. The land value plummeted as these kind of ramshackle apartment buildings went up and, you know, they weren't very shoe nice, shops were they? and little, right, little rinky-dink shops opened and little factories opened as well. So it sort of depressed the entire value of the upper estate. It, the upper estate basically became more 6th Avenue than it did 5th Avenue, I guess, well, in terms of... <laughs> 
But now the Metropolitan Opera comes in at this point. Am I right? This is this is the yeah, they come calling to Columbia, right? They notice we haven't even talked about Rockefeller yet. Oh no, but, no, no, no. We're getting to that. But we have the land. We have Columbia owning the land, and at the same time, the Metropolitan Opera, which has been around for decades at this point, is looking for a new home. They had a first home that opened in 1883, which was at 39th between 39th and 40th on Broadway, and the building was really kind of ridiculed. It wasn't, it wasn't a nice-looking building, was it? It was just sort no. of functional. They called it a brewery. That was one of the... <laughs> Probably not a nice way to refer to an terms. opera house, is it? No, it was rather graceless. It was a big yellow building uh, that was packed with the high society. I mean, the Astros, the Vanderbilts, the Morgans, others, they were all they in all, there. They all have their boxes. So really, from the turn of the century up through the early 20th century into the 1920s, there's a whole drama with the Metropolitan Opera Company looking for a new space, getting different architects, infighting within the Metropolitan Opera between the management and the theater owner. I mean, the drama goes on and on, and we, I'm sure, will do a Metropolitan Opera podcast. Yes, but so they you can are, stay tuned. Right. So, but for now, they're looking for a patron to sort of help them fund a new house. Correct. So naturally, and they have lots of patrons. They do, but if you're going to if you're going to ask a rich person for money, you might as well start at the top and ask the richest one. <laughs> and so that takes me to a little bit of an overview of the Rockefeller family. Now, they literally are the wealthiest family in America at this time. J.D. Rockefeller is the most wealthy man in America ever. Remember oh. on the, on the, the Carnegie oh, Hall yeah, we, the we Carnegie Hall right. podcast, I said Andrew Carnegie was the second. Well, the first one was JD, and the third one was Cornelius Vanderbilt. So we're just talking about all these you know fabulously rich people, and they're all around the same period of time, right? Of course. So Tom, I'm going to try to answer in four minutes the question: How the world's biggest fortune was made? How Rockefeller became so wealthy? I'm going to try to do it in four all minutes. Right. Here, I'm setting the timer and go. Well, the story begins with the very first J.D., Johnny Rockefeller, or senior, as he would be uh, denoted to set him aside from his son. Born in 1839, his parents, I should mention really quickly, his mother was an extremely devout religious woman. His father, however, was a total scoundrel. He, oh. he went, went around basically selling was a snake oil salesman. He was accused of raping a maid left their family, and then went and married another woman, so was actually com- had committed bigamy. So oh, all this word. stuff came out later after Senior became you know rich and famous. Anyway, John would have these two traits, the, the traits of being ambitious and unscrupulous, like his father, but also sort of personal moral character would also be a big thing, and, and religious faith. At age 24, he would, J.D. would actually open um, his first oil refinery with some partners. He's successful enough that he starts buying one more oil refinery than another one. Then his brother joins him. They form a company called Standard Oil. And this explodes then. He basically creates his own little monopoly for for refining, eating up other oil refineries. Literally, he was it was the only game in town. It was the definition of what you call a monopoly. He became one of the most hated men in America and was viciously attacked by the press. In 1911, the Supreme Court finally stepped in and ordered Rockefeller to break up this massive company into tiny company because it was a violation of antitrust. Mm-hmm. Now, you'd think that this would be kind of a bad thing for him, but in fact, it was it made him richer. So he, he broke up these little companies, and of course, those companies then later became Mobile, Exxon, Conoco, 
Amoco, which is now BP today. In essence, he created all the in oil essence, companies. Yes. In, in essence, all of the oil companies. And so then everyone bought stock in all of those oil companies. So this made Rockefeller even richer. So that's that's Daddy Rockefeller. So this is how he makes all of his money. So then at this time, of course, he's starting a family and he has four daughters, and finally he has one son. The entire destiny of the Rockefeller family is on the soldiers of this one son, whom we're going to call Junior. He's J.D. Rockefeller II. He was born in 1874, and he was actually, he spent most of his childhood, it was actually on 4 West 54th Street. You know what's there today, of course. That's the Museum of Modern Art. Mm-hmm. Junior was a nervous child. You know, he had these same conflicts that his father did, but almost like magnified because, you know, he was born into like massive wealth. When he grew up, he took reign of his father's massive empire, became the director of Standard Oil, and was even a director on the board of J.P. Morgan's U.S. Steel at a really, at a fairly young age. He also took charge of the family's dictate to start giving some of their money away. Um, keep in mind, I'm not saying that they stopped making money. They just said that they're going to give, uh, give it away as well as make it. So they would sponsor uh, charitable projects, like they would fund hospitals, Memorial Hospital, and that would later, of course, become today's Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. They would fund conservation projects for national parks. They would sort of re-renovate or redo places like Sleepy Hollow and Mm -hmm. uh, Colonial Williamsburg and even Versailles. In France. Oh, even Versailles. Even Versailles. Well, they <laughs> even did it in other countries. I mean... But it's incredible that also your junior, Rockefeller, was running a company, running this empire, and still concerning himself with Williamsburg and Versailles. By 1910, in fact, J. Jr. resigned, actually, from all of his major directorships, and he dealt just exclusively with this kind of philanthropy. Now, I should back up a little and say 1901, he's when he married Abby Aldrich, mm-hmm. and he ended up having with her five sons and one daughter. Now, some of those sons will figure into our story a little bit later. Now, to get us to this point back up in the story, uh, um, the sphere of influence of the Rockefeller family has moved to to 26 Broadway. That is the office of the Rockefellers. So it's from his desk at this famous glory office that he received the request from the Metropolitan Opera Society asking him if he would help sponsor the creation of a new opera house for them. Begrudgingly, he did take on this project. Um, he and, and the foundation took on this project. But one of the original plans here that he was approached with was that the opera company could factor into a massive commercial development, an office complex. It would be the um, centerpiece of it. Yes. Right. So it would be the centerpiece. So if you can just imagine, listener, that the Metropolitan Opera House is actually in the place of 30 Rock, and then you have a great promenade going up to it from Fifth Avenue, and on both sides of it, you have office buildings. That was sort of the original concept of this great development, which was in fact called Metropolitan Square. And what, yeah, that would have been the name had it not gone through this transformation. Right. Of course, this plan had its detractors. Among other criticisms was the fact that an opera house sitting there is kind of dead during most of the day. I mean, imagine it, you know, like if you had all these big offices going up to today's Lincoln Center. I mean, it just kind of sits there during the day and doesn't really get that much activity. Well, it would be like the the Broadway theaters in in Times Square if Times Square didn't have other things going for it. Right. So in January of 1929, Junior rents 
11 acres of the upper estate from Columbia for an annual rent of $3.6 million. That was a 24-year initial lease with three renewal options, each for 21 years more. So really, that could take them through most of the 20th century. But at, you know, when the first lease was up in 1953, if they didn't renew the lease, Greg, then, well, Columbia would just own anything that Rockefeller had built on their land. Yes, I mean, what if they had just decided, like, oh, you know what? Like, I'm not really into this anymore, so we'll just leave you to finish it, Columbia. Like, really? Well, right. Columbia would have just inherited skyscrapers well, that somebody else had, had paid for. Well, we'll, just ha- we'll just go to, like, another multimillionaire and they can finish it. In any case, uh, this arrangement with Columbia would keep Rockefeller's rent low. Now, the lease signing was in 1929. That wasn't really a good year for, you know, business in general in New York. For signing any kind of a lease. Right. It's kind of like a 2008. Oh. Well, that was January of 29. Of course, later on in the year, we'd have a stock market crash. And among the things that fell to the wayside was the plan for the new Metropolitan Opera House. That seems a little extravagant at this period. Well, Rockefeller had money and he had already signed the lease anyway, so he went ahead, of course, with his development because at this point, I mean, it was either build or lose. So he was going to build. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. 
Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So, but in order to do this first, there's, as you mentioned earlier, dozens and dozens of other businesses and homes. Uh, not just dozens. There were actually 203 lots on the property that he bought. If you can think of all the leases that went into 203 lots, the subtenants in those lots, 228 buildings that needed to be demolished, an estimated 5,000 tenants living in the buildings that were on Rockefeller's and there has a responsibility right. now. Right. He has to get them off. Right. He had to get them off. He had to wait over the course of years. He had to wait for leases to come up, each of their little leases and contracts, and buy each of them out so that basically they'd get the France off the property and he could build his new development. It sounds very messy, and I'm assuming there were quite a few holdouts, definitely. There were, well, of course, when the word got out that it was Rockefeller who was funding this entire thing, I mean, you have to imagine this. It's the Great Depression. You're holding a lease on property that Rockefeller now needs and will do about anything to take. I mean, a lot of people walked away with a lot of cash, uh, though he did everything he could, you know, to sort of mask it. He even formed a realty company to handle all of these transactions called the Underell Holding Company. It's so, under the L. Exactly. Uh The Rockefeller name was not to be used on any of the leases or in any of the negotiations. In fact, Rockefeller himself had a fake sort of beard name, if you will. He was referred to as Mr. David. This kind of sounds like some of the stuff that maybe his father might have been up to with the standard oil business but well like father like son yeah, i suppose yes but you can still see almost the evidence of where some of these holdouts were because this it's not a perfect square property there's like little spaces here and there yeah. that are obviously not part of the rock for even some buildings some other structures that are worked in because they never actually did sell now, there were dozens of architects that worked on Rockefeller Center with all these different buildings and interiors and exteriors, but two names to really remember the two big stars of it. One is, his name is Raymond Hood. He was a young up-and-coming designer who was known for his fantastic skyscrapers in the Art Deco style. Um, he was basically discovered in designing Chicago and designing the Chicago Tribune building. In New York, he actually has designed places like the Daily News building and the American Radiator building are two examples oh, of his right, work. Sure. He is a fantastic architect. You know, Unfortunately, though, he dies in 1934. He doesn't even see most of Rockefeller Center really get built. So really who takes over the lead after that is, well, you can probably guess, the Rockefeller's pet architect, Wallace Harrison. And he's actually quite young at this phase, too. He's getting his feet wet with this Rockefeller Center project. And of course, he would go on to do a lot of other Rockefeller projects, including the United Nations building. Construction began in July 22nd, 1931. And it's actually the same year that the that the phrase Rockefeller Center was starting to be used. Now, J.D. really bristled. He thought it was very flamboyant to have his own name on the building. He thought that was crazy. So they even contemplated calling the whole place Radio City. 
um, before the main tenant, who I'll mention a little bit here later. But they thought that that Rockefeller name at this point would really draw te- uh, tenants. They were just like, he's just, he's just like, oh, heck, let's just do it. Let's go for it. So they thought that Rockefeller would draw more tenants than Radio City? Yes, because radio is because and also Columbia didn't really want to be too associated with the entertainment mm. industry, um, which the Radio City um, would have conjured up that name. It's solely their name. Yeah, and Rockefeller was like a little bit broad appeal, I guess. So they, you know, had to excavate all that ground, all that stuff that came out of the earth, all that excavation. It basically went to filling the South Reservoir in the Central Park. Remember, there was a, a, oh, was right. a separate they reservoir. They filled that in. They filled in. It, they also used it to build some piers downtown. And they also helped to create the Shore Road, which is the southernmost part of Brooklyn, that highway that goes along oh, there. It's nice. all from landfill from here, from this section of, of where Rockefeller Center was being wow. built. As we mentioned, it was being built during the Great Depression. This was the only major construction that was happening in the city. And it was basically the only game in town if you wanted to get a job. And it kept building because Rockefeller had the money. At its height, it was employing up to 75,000 people at any given time. I think it's fair to say that Rockefeller Center was essentially propping up New York during the Depression. I think very safe to say. Now, around this time, there's a little family drama that affects Rockefeller Center. Now, I told you the oldest son, of course, he's, is also John D., J.D. the third, but he's rather a poor sequel, if you will. <laughs> it's um, because he didn't have the business acumen or the savvy of his father. He also, unfortunately, for him, had a younger brother named Nelson, who had the charm and the ambition and the determination. And basically, throughout the years, very slowly, Nelson elbowed his way into taking charge of the entire project. Believe it or not, by 1938, Nelson would would be the president of Rockefeller Center. And he's really a young man at this time, mm. but he's assisting with the growth. And this is many, many years before political, pol- political ambition. ambitions. Right. What I find interesting is how they got a lot of their tenants for, for Rockefeller Center. So as these office buildings are, are coming up, they're already out there selling office space to people. They had 8.5 million square feet of office space. And this is, Which is an incredible number. I mean, that's so much bigger than, what, any of the other skyscrapers in town. Exactly. I mean, and it's this is not the time during the Great Depression <laughs> to be looking for tenants. As a matter right. of fact... Just down the way, um, a certain Empire State Building was just built, which they nicknamed the Empty State Building because they couldn't fill any of their floors at this this particular time. So how did the Rockefellers do it? How did they attract business to these offices? Well, first of all, they did the obvious thing, where they drastically reduced the prices of the square footage just to like lure people in. But even some of the people who were supplying materials for the Rockefeller Center to, to be made... Those like part of their deals would be like, okay, you can we'll buy this and this and this from you, and then you can set up your offices here. Ah, clever. So they were actually giving away space, essentially. But then even trickier, and maybe a little more insidiously, they would actually go to other office buildings, buy out the entire lease of the entire building, completely empty the building, and move all of those tenants to Rockefeller Center. In some cases. They even bought buildings, emptied the buildings, and had everyone move into Rockefeller Center, which, of course, has this side effect of then that building is empty and all the businesses around that building then go out of business. And so it creates this bizarre domino effect. They they were even taken to court for this a little bit later, and nothing really happened with the lawsuit. But this is very dangerous. So then by 1946, Rockefeller Center is 
fully rented. 100% of the office spaces are full in 1946. I mean, they just started building it like 15 years before. And it's completely constructed? Yes. And on that note, we should, I think we should go through a sort of a list of like some of the bigger parts of Rockefeller Center and talk about them individually because that, you'll be able to see the larger picture Right, because here. they were built and opened at different times over the course of several years. So let's start actually with the RCA building, which they call the GE building today, which the 70-story building is the ninth tallest building in New York City. It was finished in 1933. It was actually one of the first constructed buildings, so you can imagine right. what that must have looked like with a huge construction area around it and this tall, towering building. This, and this is, by the way, you know that classic photograph of the workmen having lunch on, you know, oh, on a steel dangling, beam. like 80 right. stories high. Oh, that photo was taken there? Yes, it was taken of this of this building being built, of the wow. RCA building. Um, it doesn't have setbacks, or it doesn't have traditional setbacks like some of the zoning laws because it has that big plaza. So they could just do what they wanted architecturally. And so it's a really classic Raymond Hood building. It has a, a, a beautiful, ingenious Art Deco design to it. It has uh, the Rainbow Room is there on the 65th floor. The whole Rockefeller Foundation moved to the building um, and the 56th floor was where they were located. And of course, the main tenant, Radio Corporation of America, RCA, and then later NBC, both of these owned by General Electric. Now, there's artwork, of course, all over Rockefeller Center. We can't even touch on the rock. There's so much artwork. But I should mention really quickly that this was the building where the infamous Diego Rivera mural was to be put down Mm -hmm. on the first floor. By recommendation of Abby, he was commissioned to paint this beautiful mural called Man at the Crossroads. Of course, you know, being Diego Rivera, he paints a, a little bit of Vladimir Lenin into the picture. This was not received Just a well. a touch of Lenin. You know, you're the basically the heart of capitalism. It wasn't received too well, so the, the mural was painted over, unfortunately. Of course, underneath the whole place, you've got the under, underground concourse, which was, you know, it wasn't a real big success until the, the underground subway was actually built, which was complete in 1940. So they finally had some foot traffic, people going to and fro, because before that, they weren't going anywhere. And it also opened up Sixth Avenue, so it wasn't quite as dingy under the elevated railway. Well, just to the north of the GE RCA building, Greg, of course, is Radio City Music Hall. Now, we won't go into great detail here. We have another podcast on Radio City. Yes, we should listen to. It's a, it's a, I think it's a pretty good one. The building was completed in December 1932. It's right at 6th Avenue between 50th and 51st. It was designed to be the largest and most glorious theater in New York and really a guess the world. I mean, it seats, what, 6,000 people? Anyway, of course, it's Christmas time, so it's also home to the Rockettes. Now, above it is the RKO building. It's a 31-story office building, and it contained the offices of the RKO Motion Picture Company, as well as others, and it was here that they actually had the first screening of Citizen Kane. Wow, that's a good trivia question. Now, over on the east side, you have these four elongated buildings. They are the international buildings. In fact, there's one for each kind of country. There's the French one, La Maison Française. Mm -hmm. There is the second one, the British Empire Building. The third one, the Palazzo d'Italia. And the fourth one is just called the International Building and doesn't have a a, a designation. And do you know why? Seems rather odd. Well... 
It's funny because when they were looking for tenants for these buildings, even in 1932, for the Italian building, they had re- they sent representatives to Benito Mussolini's people. So I mean, you're already dealing with some, you mean uh-huh, European some shifty characters, yeah. So, but they even wanted the fourth building to be the Das Deutsches Haus. They wanted yeah. the German. Um, they were trying to grab oh, that's some problem here. Yeah, because it was the same year, 1933, that Hitler and the Nazis took power. Of course, they were they were going to go ahead with this uh, until some of some of Rockefeller's friends, including some of his influential Jewish friends, were just like, "You may not want to get in bed with this person." So then they, for a brief time afterwards, they were going to turn it into um, a Soviet Russian theme building. And so finally, they just said, "Okay, this is we just this is hot potatoes." So they just let well, they it alone. They actually bought out, you know, the Nazi and Russian corporate headquarters and just move them to Rockefeller Center. I guess, yes, they could have. And that could have solved a lot of problems. So these international houses sort of line the Fifth Avenue side, right, of the Rockefeller Center complex. Yes. And in between, really in the middle of all of them, you have what's called the Channel Gardens, or that long promenade that goes from Fifth Avenue up to 30 Rock, to the thir- to the RCA building. The Channel Gardens, by the way, interestingly, are between the French building and the British building, you know, like the actual English Channel. Very clever. Isn't that cheeky of them? And there's even a train that goes under it. There is, yes, there is. Anyway, the promenade is a pedestrian-only strip that's decorated, of course, with all kinds of plants and flowers and sculptures. Did you realize that you're actually walking down a little? The land slopes down a little, really to make, I think, the RCA building even seem more majestic. And magnetic. Right. You're being pulled into it. it. Of course, down in the ice skating rink there, which operates during the winter, and otherwise it's just sort of a plaza surrounded by flags. Paul Manship's sculpture, Prometheus, is, of course, the crown jewel atop the plaza and the ice skating rink. One of the most recognizable uh, images of New York. If you would look up and all around you, you might notice gardens on rooftops around. Those were called the overhang gardens by Hood, the architect. He envisioned seven acres of rooftop gardens. He sold it to the investors as a way of raising the rent in those offices that looked out to those. Oh, because it's, it's a nice, it's a nice view. I'm going to mention one more building because it's no longer there. It's the only building that's been demolished, and it's the Archeo Roxy, the Center Theater. It was from 1932 to 1954. It was supposed to be a movie theater, but then once the Radio City started showing movies, then mm-hmm. they decided to turn it into a Broadway house, and then for many years it was exclusively ice shows, like ice performances. For, for many, many years, throughout the years, it was just for, like, ice spectacles. In the 40s, this was, like, a kind of a trendy th- thing, these, like, ice extravaganzas. Shows on the rocks. Yes, shows on the rocks, if you will. Later still, NBC turned it into a studio, and then it was finally demolished in 1954. I and mean, there's, like, a thousand more buildings here. Right, like the whole strip on 6th Avenue. Those were purchased later, and Wallace Harrison designed buildings, those stark international buildings, and, you know, they they look kind of ominous and imposing. The later years of Rockefeller Center, in 1948, Junior officially hands control of Rockefeller Center over to his five sons, and Junior dies 12 years later in 1960. 
this family battle between uh, JD3 and Nelson just continues to happen over the years in between, of course, you know, Nelson's ambitions as New York governor and his attempts at running for president. And of course, his little short stint as vice president under Gerald Ford. Unbelievable. Even by the very end of their life, neither of them ever talked to each other. And they never talked to each other almost to the very end of their lives. A rather tragic end. The 50s were really extraordinary for Rockford Center because this is when TV explodes with the NBC studios. The Today Show first broadcasts there in 19. 1952. In 1985, finally, after leasing and renewing leases and renewing leases with Columbia, they finally sell Rockefeller Center to the Rockefeller Foundation for $411 million. Three years later, in 1988, it becomes a national historic landmark. And then one year after that, the entire complex is sold to the Mitsubishi Estate who then owned it during the 90s. And I don't know if you remember this, Tom. It wasn't doing too well in the 90s. In fact, they almost went bankrupt. A quarter of all the office spaces were actually vacant. I just It's so, so unbelievable to see that today. Wow. Um, so then they sold the old part. So they obtain even today ownership of the Sixth Avenue buildings because I guess that was more profitable for them, unbelievably. But the older part then they sold to Tishman Spire for one8 Five billion dollars, mm. and Tishman is the current landlord. Is the current landlord, and I mean they're obviously doing a fantastic job with it because it is crowded all the time, and especially at this time of the year. We're recording this in December um, because everyone is going to visit the probably the big star of the show of Rockefeller Center, which is the Christmas tree. And the Christmas tree, you know, started back in 1931 while construction was still going on. None of the buildings were open, and the construction workers wanted to just hoist up a Christmas tree of their own to just, sort of cheer people up a little. It, it was just the their stuff. own little thing, right, of course. Yeah, they put it up, they put some junky ornaments on it, they put some paper garlands and a string of, you know, cranberries. They called it a tree. It's heartfelt. It was very heartfelt. I'm sorry if you were sticking around throughout this entire podcast hoping for, like, an incredible story behind it. I mean, today, of course, it's a giant deal. The lighting of the tree is broadcast live on TV, I think even nationally on NBC. Yes, and the- it's a big thing. Big stars perform. The The tallest tree, by the way, that they've had, I think it's from ni- in 1999, it was a 100-foot tree. I mean, wow. where do they get these trees? Well, normally it's 75 to 90 feet tall. Greg, and the trees are scouted out by the head of the gardens department of Rockefeller Center, who flies over the great forests of the east, pointing out the window to possible contenders for the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. This year, 30,000 lights decorate that tree. It's five miles of lights, Greg. And now, of course, the tree has gone green, if you will. In many ways. And uh, is recycled. Last year, they recycled the wood to build Habitat for Humanity homes. So there you go. We end it with charity, now, as any Christmas podcast should. We're recording this at the very end of 2008. 2008 was the 75th anniversary of Rockefeller Center. So we are, we are glad to sort of end the year on it because it's, it's a special place in my heart. Uh, like I said, it's a place that um, I'm in every day mm. and it has very special meaning to me. And think of the story, of course, next time you're walking down Fifth Avenue and you look back and see a setback amongst all the department stores. You see a promenade that goes back to an ice skating rink and a giant skyscraper. And it could have been an opera. Well, that's about all we have time for tonight. 
So thanks a lot for listening. Like I said, this is our last show of 2008. So we wanted to wish you all happy holidays and a fantastic happy new year. There will be a new show almost the day after New Year's, <laughs> I think. As always, check our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. I'll have a lot more information actually on the history of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree and a lot of other Rockefeller-related photographs. So thanks very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next year. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.